0: Eugenio Jardim, longtime sommelier on the West Coast on the show today.
1: Hello, sir. How are you? I'm very well. How are you?
0: It's nice to see you.
1: It was nice to be here nice to be seen in New York City, especially in a beautiful day like this.
0: You picked a good day. Yeah. So you grew up in Brazil.
1: I did. I grew up in Brazil. I lived in Brazil until I was 25. And then uh, I honestly got really bored with my life. Not that I had a bad one. I was working, I was partying a lot, and it was a good life. What part of Brazil? uh, The central part, very close to Brasilia, in a city called Goiania. It's a city of about, I would say, like two, three million people. That's small for Brazilian standards. You have some (laughs) big cities down there. Yeah, very much so.
0: What was it like when you were a kid?
1: Growing up, it was fantastic because we always had a farm, and I grew up, you know, most people here in America grow up having a little puppy in the house. I grew up having a horse on the farm and a cow that was given to me when I was one, and then I saw the babies coming up and all of that, and every vacation was either on the farm or on the beach in Rio, and so it was fun. I had family all over the country, so it gave me opportunities to travel a lot.
0: Did you drink wine as a kid or?
1: oh god no i hated wine is that true oh that? i hated it my dad insisted that we tasted wine every sunday with him because of his italian heritage he, we used to have this ginormous it looks like uh, the spaghetti world exploded on our table there was a mound of spaghetti and that was the main sunday brunch and he used to keep these chianti and fiasco bottles in the fridge Because the Brazilian heat was so oppressive that he had to chill the wines first. But to me, it tasted like grapefruit without sugar. And when I was a kid, I wanted sugar. I wanted Coca-Cola. So my brother, my sisters, and I, we would take a sip just so my dad would be happy. And then we would immediately revert to, can we have a Coke, please? (laughs) Wine wasn't
0: the immediate choice.
1: No, it was not. And also because culturally, Brazilians drink a lot of beer. Because it's so hot and the alcohol levels on beer being considerably lower than wine, beer was always more refreshing. I didn't come to really have a pleasant encounter with wine until I was in my early 20s. And I was managing a group of restaurants, doing the PR for a group of restaurants and nightclubs. And one of these evenings, my co-worker said, let's sit outside. And they had this beautiful garden. And he brought in a bottle of German Riesling. And that was a revelation to me. It had the sugar that I already liked it. And it was extremely refreshing and perfumey and aromatic. And I still remember the night. I still remember the table that I sat. The club doesn't even exist anymore. But if you piece it back together, I'll point at the table to you.
0: So you got more involved in the wine from that point?
1: I became more curious about wine past that point. In 1985, I moved to Texas. Um, My brother lived in Texas, and I was trying my dibs on a career in acting. Oh, yeah, you tried
0: to study acting?
1: Not in Texas, (laughs) no. I was moving to London. I was going to apply to the Royal Academy of Drama. And I decided to stop in Texas to spend a summer with my brother, catch up with him, brushing up on my English. Little I knew that Texan English would not do me much good at uh, the Royal Academy of Drama in London. But um, And then I started working at a restaurant. I took a part-time job just to kill time and not to be just bumming around town all day long, all night long. And I noticed that this guy, this super elegant, sharp waiter, was the guy that always get the governor, the mayor, everyone important that came through the restaurant. There was no discussion They would go to this man. And I, one day I asked him, it doesn't seem fair. Why do you get all the, the big guns? And he goes, well, because I'm the only guy here that knows about wine. I was like, oh, you know about wine, huh? Yeah, I'm from California like, hmm, California. <laughs> so I became curious about wine. And I every single opportunity I had, I would offer my help to him free of charge. And, and I was like, hey, you have a big party. Do you want me to assist you? You don't have to pay me. I just want to be present. So I started listening to his presentation, seeing how he conducted himself. And I think that helped me have a more elegant presence on the floor.
0: But probably the acting thing played into that too, no?
1: Oh, big time. When you are on stage, and this is a very bizarre thing that I'm going to tell you. The first time I set foot on the theater, I was on stage. I've never seen a play before in my life. So acting is almost like you strip down everything. There is nothing for you to hide behind. One of the first plays I did, oh my God, my palms get sweaty just to think about it. One of the first plays I did, it was Moliere, I think, I believe it was Moliere. And I had a, almost sounded like to me or felt like a three minutes monologue. And I remember spending days and days and days and days creating hooks from one sentence to the next, to the next, to the next. So I would never forget. So I step on stage my big day. In the middle of it, I totally lost concentration. And um, that was one of the greatest and most terrifying moments of my life because I needed to fill in the blanks. And I've never conjured up so many pronouns or any any word that I could say, and, uh, so, and, and I would stretch words and I would repeat my last sentence with a stronger emphasis until it came back to me. And then it felt like a breeze. But that exposure, that sensation of being naked and unable to hide, really helped me through in my career. I think I'm more comfortable in front of groups than I am one-to-one. I don't know if you're noticing that. (laughs) But uh, in Brazil, there's a joke. You give him a, a matchbook, he step on it, he thinks it's a stage, and he starts making a speech. I'm that kind of person. You tell me, hey, talk about this. I'm in my element, thankfully.
0: What were you seeing in terms of wine interest in Texas at that time?
1: Very basic very basic, very classic-driven. This was uh, the middle 80s. California wines were becoming to make a big impression outside of the state. And mostly the things that we don't dare to touch today, or most people uh, have outgrown, like the big oaky buttery Chardonnays, the very green grassy aromatic Sauvignon Blancs, the big and jammy Merlots. Pinots were like not even a consideration in those days. We had one or two Cabernets. Cabernet was king and some Zins as well. So it was more like the obvious as opposed to nuanced wines.
0: And what were you getting into?
1: Oh, the buttery Chardonnays and the Zinfandel's. Ah, oh, I couldn't get enough of them. I have no shame in admitting it because I think everyone has a trajectory. If I ever write a book, the book will be the trajectory of a palate because i know where i started i started loving loving i believe the name of the wine was Edna valley if i'm not mistaken yeah, chardonnay yeah
0: vineyards oh the chardonnay
1: it was uh, that was heavenly to me and then it switched to raffinelli's Zinfandel's. Wine really, it wasn't a focus to me. I was still pursuing acting career when I moved to San Francisco. I was still like, okay, so what am I going to do next? What is what is up? But my friends are the ones that called my attention to something that was really obvious to them and not obvious to me. And that was that every single time we went out shopping for a barbecue on a Saturday afternoon, Saturday morning, I would be holding the shopping list in my hand and then... Twenty minutes later, they would just like, you were hopeless. Give me that list. And they would and I was like, what, what, what? And I would look around. I was in the wine aisle of the supermarket. I have no idea why. I just kept staring at the labels like I'm staring at those labels on your desk right now. And I've always imagined, what's the story behind that name? Who's that person? Why did they chose that calligraphy as opposed to a picture or who's that man? Who's that woman? And what's up with that family? And that translated to restaurants as well. You could not get the wine list off my hands. Everyone would be ordering, like getting their appetizers. I'm still flipping the pages. Fascinated by it. No idea why. I had, to be honest with you, not planned. I have no idea how I ended up doing what I do. Right after that summer, that I was supposed to just have visited my brother for the summer, I went back to Brazil for my sister's wedding. And when I got back to Brazil, I was, I kept thinking of Texas. I kept thinking of the United States and how wonderful the experiences I've have had, the people I've met, the places I went, the music. Oh my God, the music. Every great concert in America would come through Austin. I saw the dance company of Maurice Bejar. I saw Pat Metheny in those days. It was amazing. I saw Laurie Anderson. I saw Pink Floyd. And I was like, just fascinated by the culture, and I couldn't wait to get back. So I didn't stay in Brazil, never made it to London, came back to Texas, and from Texas a year later to California.
0: And what prompted that shift?
1: I had a very dear friend in Texas that moved to California. And once she arrived in California, she kept leaving me messages. She goes, oh my God, you would love it here. You would love it here. California is everything. You have to see this. If you love Austin, you're going to love California. Come on by. Come to California. Come to California. When I finally decided to move, she had moved to close to Sacramento in the middle of the valley And I remember landing in San Francisco, renting a car and driving towards Sacramento. And I kept looking over my shoulder and thinking, I'm driving on the wrong direction. I'm going the wrong way. I I should be going that way. Why am I walking away from that? So (laughs) three weeks later, I bought a car, I put everything I had on it, and I moved to San Francisco, not knowing a person, not knowing a soul.
0: What was it like at that time?
1: That time was survival of the fittest. I, I, I was, it was desperate times for me because I made a promise that if I got down to a certain, let's say, $1,500 on my pocket, I would go back to Texas where I had a life. I had friends. I had a job waiting for me again. So what I did is that I started getting hotel rooms, and I would wake up in the morning, check out of the hotel put all my things in a car, stop at a coffee shop, buy the newspaper and start circling jobs and calling places. And because I spoke several languages, I started putting myself out to positions that were not related to the restaurant business. So I became a tour guide in San Francisco and I was conducting tours in French, Spanish, Portuguese, and English. And I loved it because that made me really delve into the historic aspects of San Francisco. And to this day, um, my family and friends all say that I'm the best tour guide because I know a lot about the city. So the restaurant business in San Francisco in those days, I believe we had maybe a couple. We had Stars, Jeremiah Towers' restaurant, and we had Square One, Joyce Goldstein's restaurant, which were phenomenal restaurants. and And I, I remember driving by them and just looking at it and thinking. One day, one day, I'm going to make enough money and go eat there because it's fantastic. And I remember that the first night that I was at Stars, I was sitting at the bar, and all of a sudden, the whole room erupted in applause. And I was like, well, I guess I'm known here already. And it was you Brenner coming in because he had just done the King and I at the San Francisco Opera. That was the thrill of a lifetime. And that I... I I acquired a taste for fine dining by seeing these places. It was very exciting because it was the birth of the, quote-unquote, California cuisine. Chez Panisse was what it is, an institution that you just pay homage to, and then you go once a year and are fascinated by the magic of the simplicity of it, and uh And I became very interested, and I started getting jobs in restaurants and sometimes working at two or three. Oh, my God, remember doing doubles? Whoa! And I I would just take all the opportunities that came my way because I was literally a sponge. I wanted to learn. I wanted to learn everything I possibly could, and I couldn't get enough of it. One day, I got a job at a restaurant at the foot of the Transamerica Pyramid called Vertigo. And I remember really being intrigued by this woman that came and did the wine list. And she was also in the beginning of her career. Six months later, I was doing really well. I was probably the number one server at the restaurant and got many mentions from critics and a lot of compliments. Uh, But I was still fascinated by the wine thing. It was like, what is behind all this? What's there? Is there a culture? There's a subculture here that I'm, I want to be part of. So I called this woman and I said, do you know of any jobs in the business? And she said, fun you ask. My assistant just moved to Germany. Do you want a job? I was like, uh, 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 what would I do? <laughs> and uh, the job was assistant wine buyer. And I was thinking, I barely know how to drink wine. Now I'm going to buy wine. And boy, it was a baptism by fire because a month later, I was actually buying wines and tasting wines and dealing with wines. But the best thing about this job was that she never lied to me. She said, pretend that this is like you're going back to school. You know, you make about $50 an hour as a waiter in San Francisco these days. You're going to make $750. I was like, ooh, that's tempting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't like lifestyle. <laughs> yeah. Having money is such a burden. <clears throat> but she said, you will, for a fact, and I promise you, taste at least 20 wines every day, Monday through Friday. And every sample that I get that is left over, you can take it home. I was like, hmm, now you sweeten the deal. And I took the job and never looked back. This was one of the true last mom-and-pop wine shops. It was called the Ashbury Market. Ashbury Market was from the Wong family, and Wilfred Wong had just left the position, and his assistant, Debbie Zacharias, had just taken over for him, and I came to work with Debbie.
0: And you've had a long friendship that continues to We this day.
1: started. We started. We we'd never met each other. She just did the wine list for Vertigo, and we became friends, and we're still friends now all these years later, uh, which is incredible. Great longevity on our friendship. But I remember that in those days, it was just fascinating. It was fascinating because Kathy Corison would come and deliver the wines herself. Mia Klein would stop her car and pull her hand truck and, can I help you? oh yeah, you grab that case, I'll grab this one. Michael Honig used to come in with his hand truck. I remember Doug Tonnell walked into the store one day. I started a conversation with him, and and he said, yeah, I make wine in Oregon. I was like, oh really? Yeah, well, we should taste it. So I called Debbie, and we all sat down and started tasting, and He asked, who should I work with in San Francisco? And we go, oh, our great friends, Jack Chamber, and and he has this great company. And to this day, he still works with them. So there was this great thing that was starting. And a lot of people would recognize that I was going places that I wasn't just passing through. And every time I ask a very idiotic question, they would take their time, stop, and explain to me. I remember Every single one of those people that paid attention to me and saw something in me. It was a great place to be at that point in time.
0: By that time, you're fully in the wine world. This is your
1: thing. Oh, yeah. Nothing else.
0: What was the wine scene like in San Francisco at that time? I mean, was it
1: people in their 20s? Was it people in their 30s? Was it a mix? It was a mix, but mostly they were not as young as they are today. And the fascinating thing about it is that everyone kind of like worked their way up. And no one was afraid of working. You would walk into the most prestigious job and uh, you would see the head guy carrying boxes of wine, sweating buckets, stocking, putting wines in the fridge, putting wines, changing the wine list, changing pages, and then putting on a suit and co-managing the restaurant. This was a time that wine was not recognized as the source for revenue that it is recognized to be today. So you wanted to milk that person on your staff to do as much as you possibly could. So it, it was not uncommon that a, a sommelier, a wine director, would have opening and closing duties uh, in the restaurant that would be in charge of hiring and firing or printing menus or typing wine lists and doing all this. So that, in in that sense, had evolved a lot. And a lot of those people are the true mentors to me because there was no lack of humility on their part. And they were very respectful of those that came before them. So I learned from the best and I never, if I'm sitting in the room, like well, a classic example is Aubert de Vilaine from Domain Romanicanti. We're having a seminar in San Francisco, and the host of the event, okay, now we're going to have some questions. And he goes, So, Eugenio, what do you think of this? And I look to my left and I look to my right, and there were my predecessors, people that I revered. And I basically gently and kindly declined because I thought, I would want to hear their opinion first in deference to those that came before me. And I think the wine business lost a little bit of that, that humble attitude, that humility to know that one, you don't know all, and somebody knew that before you. And uh, those are my true warriors of the business, the ones that came before me.
0: That would have been kind of around the time that Colt Cabernet was really taken off. Did you see that start to take
1: hold inside of San Francisco? Oh, my goodness, yes. And it was also a coincidence that that was the time of, if I'm not mistaken, the first internet boom. But they were also not as, not as aggressive as they are price-wise today. The prices were within reach. And when, when I say they were pricey, they were $50 a bottle when most of the Cabernets costed $20, $25. So the really outrageously really priced one would be $60 or $70. Now you have bottles of $1,500. I think the diners were very fascinated by the powerful California wine. Subtlety had not hit anyone yet at that point. I think everyone was really intrigued by, oh my God, can we make wines that rival the French? Oh yes, we can. And that took hold and lasted for a while. Until people like Larry Stone, that crafted wine lists that were mainly focused on subtlety and wine, people started getting us, oh, there's a different way to look at this. There's not just one school of winemaking, there are, are many others and it, it was different to feel that shift. And also because if you think about it, the more unadultered the ingredients of the on the cuisine are, the less power you need from the wine. You need a wine equally free, equally subtle, equally balanced. And that's when we all started thinking, hmm. Maybe that 14, 15, 16% alcohol wine is really not really going with this dish. It's actually kind of killing it. And then I think myself and a very large group of sommeliers, we all started getting really menu centric and very focused on what the cuisine was and designing our wine lists around the chef.
0: What was going on on the cuisine side?
1: There was a proliferation of French, classic French restaurants like uh, La Folie, Fleur de Lis, among others. And then we started seeing the great birth of California-inspired restaurant such as Boulevard and Rubicon and then Jardiniere and others that came and really put a stamp on it and said, this is something that we're going to be doing. This is new and different. Is really stripped down to the bones, but with impeccable technique. And it became almost the same focus that that was happening in the vineyards, you know, with the wine. The wine starts in the vineyards, and the the chef says the food, great food, starts with ingredients. And that, to me, was fascinating to be around in those days.
0: You went to Jardinera for a long stint.
1: One of the things that I inherited in terms of inventory on a wine list and a wine cellar was very classic-focused And I realized that there was not a good connection between the wines that were featured on the wine list and the dishes that were on the menu. There was such subtlety. The food was so, quote-unquote, clean, and the wines were so extracted and rich and heavy because it was focused on classics. And mind you, classic wines are great wines, But they need about 20, 25 years until they are showing their true colors, until they achieve subtlety, because they start off with a lot of power. So I inherited a lot of big wines. I inherited a big, heavy-duty, heavy-handed wine list, and I slowly, slowly transformed it into an international wine list. I opened the doors to the wines of South Africa, to the wines of Argentina, to the wines of New Zealand, German Rieslings. And and I kept being fascinated by how well they pair with food. And a few trips to Italy did that, and another trip to Spain and Portugal and so forth and so on. So it was a world of discovery, and I could not understand why we kept the doors shut to some regions or varieties or countries. They all had something wonderful to offer. I'm never going to carry one banner. Is when people ask me, what is your favorite wine? My answer always starts with today, my favorite wine is. And there's a wine for every occasion. There's a wine for every season. There's a wine for every cuisine. But I have to admit, to the style of cuisine that we had at Jardinier, Pinots were very, very well suited from Anywhere in the world, as long as they were balanced, they found a place in my list. If the base of your cuisine is fresh seasonal ingredients and you are leaving it aside, heavier sauces, and they use a very deep colored, intense flavored sauces. If you're not charring your meat, if you're not creaming the sauces of the fish or the pastas, You really don't have room to go much higher on the scale, on the power scale. So Pinot sits comfortably right in the middle of that range of a very agreeable range of flavors. And also Pinot has natural, brilliant acidity that cuts through a lot. It enhances a lot of the dishes.
0: And I feel like that was the era where you started to hear about bridge wine. Between two dishes, you could pair one wine, one bottle.
1: Yeah. And that was also, to me, when we started paying attention and food and wine pairing became about the condiments, because the protein was very clear what goes with what. And I always give people this example, like, you know, these were the times where restaurants would have one day halibut with mushroom and pinot noir sauce, and the next day was shallots and champagne butter sauce. So it's the same protein. Would you pair the same wine with them? Not really. Probably the Pinot with one and the Chardonnay with the other or a Riesling with the other or a Gewurztraminer or a Pinot Gris. So the condiments really dictated pairings a lot. And I started paying a lot of attention to that and I started being less, oh, meat, red wine, fish, white wine. That went out the window quickly for me. Was there some work that you had to do in terms of education or presentation? Big time. Chef Tracy de Jardin, when she was interviewing me, she said, well, all your colleagues went to pursue the Master Sommelier or the Master of Wines degree, and you didn't. So how are you going to respond to the clientele that we have here? This is the creme de la creme de San Francisco. It's right, right next door to the opera, next door to the ballet and the symphony. Everyone comes through here. How are you going to respond when they confront you? Because they will. And I said to Tracy, I still remember, I said, Tracy, what I know, I know really well. What I don't know, I'm eager to learn. So there's no shame in admitting that you don't know something. But that came sooner than I expected. Uh, a waiter came up to me one night and said, You have to go to the stable. This man is furious. And I was like, Why? I don't know. He won't tell me. He's flipping through the wine list, he's almost ripping the pages. So I run to the table and, you know, my Brazilian grace came into play and I, how can I help you? And the gentleman looked at me and to my face and said, and you call this a world-class wine list and shut it, shut the list and threw it on the table. I was like, yes, sir, I do. Why? Well, you don't have any other wine spectator top five wines of the year. You don't have... Any of Parker's top 100 points and 98 and 99 points. How can you call this a world-class wine list? I was so clever at that moment and I was so level-headed. I said to him, sir, if you order anything on this wine list and you don't like it, I'm two feet away and I'll run right here. I will rectify the situation. But I also explain to you why I bought it and why I liked it. However if you buy a 100-point wine from Parker that I have on the list and it tastes terrible, I can't get Parker on the phone to explain to you that. Oh, yeah, I guess you got a point. So I think he was a very, very strong lawyer, and he had, uh, he had that attitude of, like, I'm bringing you down. And I was so humble in my defense of my position that he totally accepted and said, well, Then I guess I'm in your hands. Here's the wine list. And I cater to that client all night long. And to this day, I remember and I tell every waiter, every sommelier that comes to me complaining about a difficult guest. And I say, there's no better pleasure than turning that situation around. It's no fun to serve wines to somebody that likes it and likes whatever you bring. And, oh, yeah, that's great. Thank you. Bye-bye. But if you're really going to do do your job, to to service, remember, it's a service and hospitality business. You need to serve and be hospitable. And I think I have both of those qualities. And I put them to work day in and day out. And to me, there was no better pleasure than to see – The light in somebody's eyes when they made a new discovery.
0: Did you start to see a pendulum shift inside of San Francisco, or which way did it go?
1: Tremendously. Um, And in those days, I think it became sommeliers. Not this job was this work was not done just by myself. There were so many others. There are our friends in common that you know as well that did phenomenal work. And I think we built a name for our community, not as wine snobs, but as as wine aficionados and wine-passionate people. I don't know if there is a title for that that would describe accurately, but we had great respect for wine. And I believe that became noticed, and therefore we were allowed a lot more freedom. Tracy Desjardins, for example, never ever told me or questioned my choices for the wine list. I ran an impeccable wine program, fiscally speaking. Also, that's an aspect of the business that people don't think about it. They see the sommelier on the floor and they think, oh, he just waltz in, puts his suits, grabs a glass of champagne, and charm everyone throughout the night. Well, if at the end of the month your numbers don't look good and you're not bringing in the revenue that is expected from your program, you're in trouble. I wanted to show wine as not only a pleasurable thing, but a profitable thing as well.
0: What was it like working with Tracy?
1: She's a witch. She enchanted me for 15 years. She made it impossible to quit because she's such a wonderful person. She's not only the real deal, in my opinion, as far as her culinary awareness, her sensitivities, She's extremely intelligent and also one of the most compassionate people I've ever met. Jardiniere at that time was paying a higher uh, minimum wage than anyone else in the business because she wanted to, because she felt that she needed to, because San Francisco was an expensive place to live. She was offering ESL classes for our Latino workers that were learning. They were immigrants. They were learning how to speak English. She would give me full reign to open as many bottles of wine as needed to train our staff to taste with everyone, with everybody. She had this open door policy that even if I had a complaint about her right-hand man, she would listen. So it it was incredible because she was not only a phenomenal chef... And a great humanitarian, but she was also, she is still to this day, an incredible businesswoman. And I learned a lot from her.
0: What were some of the surprises along the way? I mean, you were there for almost a decade and a half.
1: I think that people started really enjoying Discovery. That was one of the biggest thrills for me. I have a bartender that was there. 10 years ago, and I I saw him on the street the other day, and he said, remember, Eugenio, remember the first time you changed the wines by the glass list when you came in? And I was like, mm, um, maybe. <laughs> and obviously, he remembered. He said, you were the first person to put a Mont-Louis by the glass because you loved Channing Blanc. Do you remember that? I was like, yeah. When was that? And he was like, oh, that was... and. It was a long time ago. So I started really walking the walk with my clientele. And, you know, if springtime comes and things are getting lighter on the menu and a lot of raw fish and seafood is appearing, why not put an unpronounceable Basque wine on the list and, and teach people how to say Chocolina? And that became a joke because I would catch the waiters on the corners going, chakolina. Chacolina, 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 Chacolina. <laughs> and they would practice how to say it. And I would just walk away with a big smile on my face because to me, that meant endorsement. They believed what I was doing. And, and I think that was the greatest, most gratifying thing to me. It's just one, to receive the confidence, the voter confidence of the chef and The staff and on the other side to get the reception and to see how open the most conservative quote unquote clientele was to my discoveries, to my innovations.
0: Was it important to put a personality stamp on a wine program?
1: Absolutely. I don't think I don't think it would have gone so well if I wasn't there behind the wine and if I didn't help of equally excited sommeliers working with me that believed the message that I was trying to pass.
0: Were there things where you thought, oh, that might really take off in terms of wine and it just didn't ever take hold or maybe it took hold much later?
1: Yeah, there is. I hate to admit it, I was wrong. I thought Syrah was going to be the new Pinot. I really thought. I really thought that Pinot Noir, well, Pinot received an enormous boost, we all know. Sometimes from Syrah. (laughs) But also with that movie, uh, Sideways, that almost like bankrupted the Merlot uh, producers from around the world. But uh, I thought that Pinot was going to be the stepping stone to Syrah. Because, in my opinion, well made Syrah. Uh, Syrahs from the Northern Rhone or Northern Rhone-inspired Syrahs are phenomenal wines. And I'm fascinated by the array of aromas, the gaminess, the earthiness, the herbaceous quality, the smell of tar, the smell of, of raw meat. I mean, where do you get this in the wine? When? And I thought everyone would go on that bandwagon with me and be fascinated by Syrah. It didn't happen. I think it still hasn't happened, unless it's happening here in New York, and I don't know. But uh, uh, Sirai is still there. It it has its place. It has its presence. But it never became the it grape that I thought it would.
0: And how else did the wine business change? You see new people coming in. It seems like there was an explosion in Napa Valley.
1: And. An, exp- an explosion of the, Well, in, in producers, yes, and also in professionals, in wine professionals. I think the industry changed a lot, but I have to be very careful how I say this so I, my young friends out there don't think that I'm saying something negative. But it seems to me that there's a lot more people in the business, which is great, there's a lot more young and attractive people which is great makes our industry looks wonderful and fun and exciting but there is a sense of entitlement that i i can't bear it i don't know where it came from and uh and i i feel sad that there is no longer the need for you to slap boxes in a damp basement for days on end, uh, covered in dust, and, and and there is no need for you to do any of that anymore because the restaurant business has become so sophisticated that now you have a person to receive, a person to pay the bills, a person to stock the wine, a person to present the wine, somebody prints the wine list. And the sommelier is actually becoming quite glamorous nowadays and just show up dressed in beautiful Armani suits with a glass of champagne in hand to serve wines. And I wish there was a little bit more humility on the newer generation coming up to know that there's a lot of rewards that will come along. But but don't lose respect for the subject matter. And the subject matter is wine, And it's not something that I made. I have tremendous respect for winemakers because I ask most of them, how do you sleep at night? I would be completely paranoid. Did I rack that one? Oh, my God, did I stop the fermentation of that? thing? I couldn't sleep. I don't know how they do it. So I I have immense respect for them. And I think in my profession, I've been just very fortunate to be able to enjoy the benefits of their hard work. And I'm just the intermediate. I'm taking the wines from A to Z and with great enthusiasm and great respect. I count my blessings every day there's some people that sit on a cubicle and stare at a screen of a computer every day i stared at beautiful glasses beautiful scintillating bubbles and i traveled to the most beautiful places in the world
0: what about that travel what were some of the vistas and landscapes that really captivated you oh my god my
1: god so many of them i'll never forget how i had tears in my eyes when I woke up and we're coming down the hills through the Tarragona Mountains into the Priorato region in Spain. I had tears in my eyes because the sun was rising and it was one of the most breathtaking views I had seen so far. And then you go to Austria and you're you're going down or up the Danube River and you're looking to the sides and you're drinking the wines that came from those plots of lands that you're looking at. Or when you go to Burgundy and all the vineyards are changing colors in the autumn and, and it is that tapestry of colors. Or you go to Portugal and you're on that craziest of all roads in the Douro Valley and everyone is about to faint. And you're, the palm of your hands are sweaty because you think there's no way we're going to make that curve. And you you actually make the curve and it's every corner is a breathtaking view So I've, I don't. It's like wine. I don't have a favorite place, but I keep going back to one specific one. I've been going to Portugal a lot,
0: and you're working with them as a brand ambassador.
1: I have started working as the U.S. ambassador for the wines of Portugal in the U.S. and is mostly, thankfully, not directed to sales. I don't sell anything. I just talk a lot about everything. (laughs) So it is an an educational and promotional position that I have been very fortunate to have a chance to go back to Portugal many, many times. And every single time I go, I come back more and more in love with that country. It's funny because I should have known that there would be great similarities, culturally speaking, because Brazil, where I'm from was a Portuguese colony for 322 years. So culturally, I identify a lot with the things from Portugal. The names, the looks of the people, some of the music, some of the cuisine, and we all love bacalhau, and amongst other dishes. And the country itself is just breathtaking. I I can't get enough of Portugal.
0: What are some of the things about Portugal that I may not know that I should know?
1: There's a, a region that if I had the power of a Bear de Vilaine <laughs> or that kind of a pull I would immediately start a petition to turn that region into a UNESCO heritage site because it's very close to Lisbon and is getting engulfed by Lisbon because it is perfectly positioned on the sea and is the region's called Coladish and is an ancient growing region that the vines are basically planted in sand dunes, and they grow. They snake around around the the ground on sand. They are not even lifted from the ground. Um, they are lifted by a stick when the grapes start maturing, so they don't. They are not rotting on on the sand. And the wines you can't find it anywhere else in the world. There's one specific grape from there called Ramisco that makes this red wine. That, in the best of my abilities, I I've been looking for a way to describe it. To me, it's like tasting a perfectly aged Pomar, red burgundy, with a pinch of sea salt. Because it's planted, the vineyards are planted in sand dunes less than 300 meters from the ocean. And God knows how they survive in that environment. But they do. And the wine that they produce is... Absolutely fascinating. One British uh, writer called it the most endangered wine region in the world because it's disappearing rapidly.
0: And that's because of real estate development.
1: Real estate development, very privileged location facing the Atlantic Ocean, just 45 minutes outside of Lisbon, the largest city in Portugal. And, And it's just really, really breathtakingly beautiful. What are the
0: prospects for Portuguese wine in general in the United States?
1: I honestly believe that is the last undiscovered country. And every single time I say the word undiscovered related to Portugal, which had started the age of discoveries on the 1500s, this sounds like really funny, but it's amazing that a lot of people, you'll be surprised how many people will say to you in America today, oh, I didn't know Portugal made wine. I thought they only made port. There is not a great knowledge. And that's where I come in and the institution that I work for, Vini Portugal, it's really focused in promoting Portugal, bringing awareness to the wines of Portugal, because you can fit four Portugals inside California. You can actually put the the whole country between San Francisco and Los Angeles, and they have over 250 grape varieties that are native of that area. Not that made their, their home, native. Only Italy has more. It is fascinating that in such a small country, you can have such diversity, diversity of terroir, diversity of soils, of climates, of grapes, and just a culture. And they, they are very unique. Each region is very unique.
0: Eugenio Yardim grew up in Brazil and found a similarity in Portugal. Thank you very much for being here today.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Great to be in here.
0: Eugenio Yardim has a long career in wine in the West Coast. Thank you very much for being here today. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey.